0: Second Corinthians chapter 10 verse 12 says, for we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. We, however, will not boast beyond measure, but within the limits of the sphere which God appointed us, a sphere which especially includes you. Drop down, if you would, to verse 17. We'll read just that last verse as well. Verse 17 says, but he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. For not he who commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commends. So we have been looking at this next section in 2 Corinthians chapters 10 through 13 are all very different kind of atmosphere than the first nine chapters. And So much so that many people have wondered if it's maybe part of a different letter that got connected. And we discussed some of those things last week. We came through the section, the first section of First Corinthians and Paul talking about spiritual warfare. Do you remember that from last week? We were talking about spiritual warfare and Paul saying the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not worldly. They're not based on human wisdom but they're mighty in God for pulling down strongholds and casting down arguments. And that's kind of where we left off, talking about those things. And I stopped a little bit early, and now I know that it really wasn't early. It was all according to God's timing, because we're gonna jump back in this week, and we're gonna talk about, and this is why I'm so excited about this, we're gonna talk about tearing down the stronghold of comparison. Tearing down the stronghold of comparison, because the weapons of the carnal warfare, of the self-centered warfare, are criticism, judgmentalism, boasting, and pride. And those were the weapons of the false teachers or false pastors that were in Corinth wreaking havoc, trying to steal the hearts of the people. So Paul is gonna now tear those down by tearing down the root of those, which is comparison. And believe me, I know, I've been in this long enough to know that comparison is a humongous giant of a stronghold, thick, fortified walls in a human mind. Have you ever felt like you didn't measure up? Have you ever felt like you fell short? Maybe you've said, I just feel like I've fallen short or I didn't measure up. Those are comparison terms. We compare everything my life to your life, my family to your family, my job to your job, my kids to your kids, my church to your church. Maybe in your family, there was comparison. Did any of you have a sibling that was the favorite and you were not? And they were always being praised and commended and you just felt like in your family, you were invisible, you just disappeared in the family. Maybe you were a middle child or something like that. And you just felt like, you just grew up feeling like, I don't measure up. He's always doing better in school. She's always better on the athletic field. We compare ourselves academically. We compare ourselves financially, athletically. All of these ways that we compare ourselves. Women, ladies, oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. She is so skinny. Her kids are much better behaved. Her house is so much nicer. Her life is just so much more together than mine. She's such a great mom. And what you get with that is self-condemnation, self-hatred. Guys, he's so much more successful. He's got such a better job. He has great hair. I mean, it's a hypothetical list. (laughs) Just a hypothetical list. He's got great hair. So we get into this comparison and then we're talking about human level comparison. And what are the emotions and the actions connected when we fall into this stronghold of comparison? Well, in some ways, it depends on which side you fall into. If you tend to be a self-hater or tend towards self-criticism, then you're gonna focus yourself on a standard for someone else's life that you fall short in. You're gonna always look at other people as better than you, judged by whatever individual one portion of a standard that you decide based on appearance or based on child raising or based on homeschooling or based on whatever it is that you decide is the standard, then you're gonna judge yourself by their standard and you're gonna judge yourself to have fallen short. You're gonna always perceive others to be better because you're comparing yourselves to people that you are judging by a standard you fall short in. The feelings that are attached to that, shame, regret, inadequacy, envy, jealousy, hatred of others, feeling threatened. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Then the actions that come along with that are isolation, depression, becoming critical, and becoming judgmental. By the way, criticism and judgmentalism are part of both sides. Anytime you compare yourself to others, it will oftentimes lead to having to be critical and judgmental on both sides of the coin. But before we get to the other side, let me finish this one out. One blogger said, comparison is a silent killer that breeds jealousy and shame, anxiety, and discontentment. Psychology Today article called the comparison trap, defines social media. Now, comparison has always been around from the garden to the present time, but this is how social media has changed the game. Psychology today defines social media as a turbocharged precision instrument for social comparison unlike anything in human history. Part of its uniqueness, researchers point out, is that it paints a heavily skewed picture of one's social universe, People are most likely to share peak experiences and flattering news about themselves. This is what a University of Houston psychologist calls everyone else's highlight reel. And tech companies, furthermore, use algorithms to prioritize that very information in social media feeds. The narrow, distorted slice of reality that is displayed on social media, where most people live, is almost perfectly constructed to make viewers feel deficient and discouraged as you compare yourselves to someone else's highlight reel. You compare your blooper reel to their highlight reel. Look, if you struggle with depression, if you struggle with discouragement, can I just beg you, get off the social media? And ultimately, we'll look at how Paul says to to tear down the stronghold, because we're going somewhere with this. But on the other side of the coin, if you tend towards self-righteousness, you're gonna perceive, and you tend to perceive yourself to be better by cultural standards than others. The feelings attached to that are pride, arrogance, superiority, and power. The actions, again, judgmental, critical, boasting about self, competitive, and controlling. This is where the Pharisees of Jesus' day lived as they compared themselves to others. Remember the story of the Pharisee and the publican, the tax collector, they go into the temple and the tax collector is beating his chest, just feeling unworthy, And the Pharisee says, I'm glad I'm not like that guy. I pray three times a day. I fast. Had his whole measuring list of why he was so much better than that guy. And oftentimes that's where we find ourselves, well, I'm not in prison like that guy. So I'm a good person. Well, you have a standard for goodness. The problem with that whole mentality is I've developed a standard for what's good. And I fit my standard, but you don't. So I look down on you, but up on me. So both of those things I find to be true. And this is where Paul is with this self-righteous folks. This is what the apostle Paul is dealing with, with the boasting, with the criticism, with the judgmentalism. He's on the receiving end of that. Remember, even in First Corinthians, if you were here for that study, there were factions happening in the church in Corinth. Some would say, I'm of Paul. And others would say, I'm of Apollos. And others would say, I'm of Cephas. They were comparing and contrasting the different teachers and aligning themselves with the ones that they felt were measured up to their standard. And this is creating great division in the church. For Paul here, as I spoke about last week, it's the sophists, it's the wise arguers and debaters, those that have elevated speaking ability to be at the top of the list of what makes a good pastor. And the beauty of that for them was they were all good speakers. They had their good speakers club. And they were a self-proclaimed attaboy club. And they just congratulated themselves and felt good about themselves when they compared themselves to others. And one of those others was, guess who? The Apostle Paul. Because you see, he didn't have such a great speaking ability. He didn't have a stage presence. So they were able to look down on him. So how does Paul, listen carefully, how does Paul stick with it? How do you stick with it? When you're faced with having to pastor a church or do ministry or be engaged in life where other people are looking down on you, criticizing you, and you're forced to compare yourself to them, how do you get by? Well, that's exactly what Paul is gonna talk about. So verse seven, he says, do you look at speaking to the church? Do you look at things according to the outward appearance? Great question. If anyone is convinced in himself, that he is Christ, let him again consider this in himself, that just as he is Christ, even so we are Christ. So the first thing Paul says is, stop being overly concerned with externals. He says to the church, do you look at the outward appearance? I mean, is that what you're looking for to determine spirituality? I and mean, think about when they chose King David, when Samuel comes to anoint King David to be king. They picked all the older brothers. Samuel said, oh, well, this has gotta be the guy. Look at him. He's big, he's strong, he looks like a king. And then you get down to the little shepherd boy. And God says, That's the one, Samuel. And Samuel learns a big lesson, a lesson that you and I need to really take to heart today. God does not see as man sees, man looks at the outward appearance, God looks at the heart. And David might have been a small statured young guy, but he had a huge heart for God. And there's a lot of people that have a great big stature and a great big speaking ability and great big lots of letters after their name, but a really small heart for God and for other people. See, this is the challenge with comparison. We can only compare based on what we see. When we try to compare based on what's inside, we have to use our imagination because we don't really know what's inside that person. Solomon says this when he's dedicating the temple. When Solomon builds his temple, this beautiful, big, marvelous temple, during his prayer of dedication, he's acknowledging that, God, the people are gonna sin. And when they come to you, you need to forgive them. And that's a brief summary. He goes on and on about that. But this is what he says. He says, whatever prayer, whatever supplication is made by anyone, this is in the middle of a prayer between Solomon and God. When each one knows the plague of his own heart and spreads out his hands toward this temple, then here in heaven, your dwelling place and forgive and act and give to everyone according to all his ways, whose heart you know, for you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men. You alone. He doesn't say you and my dad, doesn't say you and... This person over here, does you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men? Is it outward appearance that makes a person right with God? Or is it what's in the heart? See, if we want to be able to judge and measure, then we need to have something we can see. I've got to judge myself and I've got to judge others. So oftentimes clothes become the standard. Some of you grew up in a church where it's got to be coat and tie and a dress. If you're a woman, it's got to be dressed. Can't wear pants. You know what I mean. For the Amish, buttons are no buttons. For uh, women in some churches, it's a stylish hat. The problem is not wearing those things. You can decide to wear whatever you want, Whatever modesty is the key in the Bible. But the reason we get so nitpicky about it is because I need to be able to judge you. And I got to have a standard I can measure you by. So then our church develops its standard of how people are supposed to look when they come to church outwardly. And then that's what everybody gets judged by. Do you know what I'm talking about? Now, see, that can happen in reverse. Can I give you a little window into my little wicked heart? We have the reverse. We're Calvary Chapel. I mean, we're all about flip-flops and a Hawaiian shirt. So we look at other people and go, well, if you don't wear flip-flops to church, you don't get grace. You don't understand grace. So me, I look at pastors that wear robes and I'm just confessing. Like, so I got some friends, guys that are denominational pastors that wear robes when they preach. And I oh, robes, you, you should know better that it's not about the clothes you wear, right? And I can go there too, I can reverse judge. So I have to be careful too. That it's not about robes or not robes, it's not about flip-flops or not flip-flops, it's not about shirts and ties or, or casual Hawaiian shirts. It's about what's in the heart. Am I with you, church? Are you with me? It boils down to this, are you Christ's? And Paul says, if anyone is convinced in himself that he's Christ. Let him again consider this in himself, that just as he is Christ, even so, we are Christ. They were boasting and saying, well, we're really Christians. We're really, you know, that's how it goes. It's not that the people that don't dress like me or they don't carry the Bible, it's not that they're not Christians. We'll acquiesce to, well, they can be, but they're not Christians like I'm a Christian. Because I wear this, if they were really believers, if they were really strong Christians, they would wear this too. And that's what's happening to Paul. They're judging him as, well, maybe he's a Christian, but he's not like us. We're really Christ. But evidently, Paul, he's not. Do you catch that? You got to read between the lines. If anyone is convinced himself that he is Christ, they were. Let him again consider this in himself, that just as he is, so am I. Matthew 23, 5, Jesus talks to the Pharisees about these things. Everything they do is for show. On their arms, they wear extra wide prayer boxes with scripture verses inside, and they wear robes with extra long tassels just to show. Why do you think tongues, speak, the gift of speaking tongues, became so elevated in the church in Corinth and in some ways elevated in our church culture? Because it's a visible thing. It's a fakeable thing. It's a thing that I can put out there and say, well, see, I've arrived, I'm a Christian. And if you don't do this, which by the way, the Bible says not everybody has that gift. But it's something that now I can use as a measuring rod to say, well, am I really saved or not? So it becomes a measuring stick. In the end, what Paul says, here's what we ask. Are you Christ? Yeah. Am I Christ? Yeah. Then we're good. The comparison is not how good or bad of a Christian you are. The comparison, are you Christ or are you not? And if you don't know that answer today, Forget about all the externals and all the formals and all the religious stuff. The question today is, are you Christ or not? If you're Christ, you have his righteousness. And if you're not, you're still in your sin. I love the Bible. just makes everything so simple, right? So that's what Paul says. If he's Christ, then so am I. We can meet on that ground. That's one way to tear down that stronghold of comparison is to just look at that other person and say, well, you know what? They're Christ and I'm Christ. We're even. I can't be any more righteous than Christ's righteousness. And they can't be any more righteous than Christ's righteousness. So we're even. Isn't that great? So that's the first way. Are you Christ or are you not Christ? That's what it boils down to. Now, he says, verse eight, for even if I should boast somewhat more about our authority, which the Lord gave us for edification and not for your destruction... I shall not be ashamed, lest I seem to terrify you by letters. Now, remember, there's a group of outsiders that have come into Corinth and they're commandeering the church with their fancy debating and their fancy logic and rhetoric and they're leading people astray. Paul actually describes them as workers of Satan. So They'll say that they're Christ's. Satan's workers don't come out and wear a T-shirt to church and says, hey, I'm a wolf, in case you're wondering, any sheep that want to get eaten around here? Just letting you know. No, they're going to come and say, I'm a sheep. You're a sheep. I'm a sheep. They're going to say the right things. So they're saying they're Christ, but we'll see it in a few chapters that Paul says they're actually workers of Satan. And they're coming in and they're denouncing Paul's authority. Said, so what right does Paul have to tell you what to do? I mean, We're the real guys. We're the real deal here. No matter what Paul does, they're going to criticize him. And there's all kinds of conversation happening behind Paul's back in the church. So Paul writes a hard letter to them about dealing with sin in their church, and he cries over it. He doesn't wanna have to write it, but he cares about them, he loves them. He wants to see their church be healthy and growing and a good witness to the city of Corinth. So he writes them a letter to help them deal with some things. And then these yahoos roll in and they say, oh, they play good cop, bad cop. Oh, Paul should be ashamed of himself. Look at how he wrote to you. He should be ashamed of himself. For boasting about that kind of authority with you guys. So Paul says, if I should boast more about our authority, and he says, which by the way, the Lord gave us not to tear you down. I'm not trying to tear you down, but to build you up. Sometimes moms and dads, you know it. Discipline is not meant to shame or punish or hurt kids. It shouldn't be. It's meant to build your kids up. It's meant to help them grow. That's what discipline is for. But you bring discipline and the kids say, I hate you. I hate you. I don't love you. Oh, nothing goes through the heart of a parent, right? Because I know all I'm trying to do is to help you. And all you want to say is, I hate you. I don't love you because you disciplined me. And it hurts. And that's the kind of relationship Paul has with the Corinthians. He's had to bring some discipline. And now they're getting this bad advice and saying, Paul really doesn't have the place to do that. Paul says, look, I'm not going to be ashamed lest I seem to terrify you by the letters. If I terrify you, that's okay. I had to do it. Verse 10, now this is in quotes. This is the false teachers in Corinth speaking. This is the back conversation. For his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence and his speech contemptible. Literally, his speech count as nothing. This is what is being said about Paul behind his back. Well, he talks a mean game from far away. His letters are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is nothing. He doesn't mean what he says. He talks a big game, but he's got a lot of bark, but no bite is what they're saying. I find this to be true of people on social media. I don't mean to be down on social media today, but I'm down on social media. It's just where I am. I think it can be used for good things. It's a tool, but I think the majority of what it does is produce some difficult things. So I find on social media, people answer and respond to somebody's post with great big words that you'd never say if you were in front of that person. You got great big social media muscles. And that's what they're saying about Paul. He's got great big social media muscles from far away. He can say big things, but when he comes here, he's not going to say it. And what they're confusing is Paul's desire to be gentle with people. And they're confusing that for weakness, purposely. Paul was gentle They're saying, Paul is weak. And Paul is saying, (laughs) look, he says, verse 11, let such a person consider this. (laughs) Think about this, that what we are in word by letters when we're absent, such we will also be indeed when we are present. I can be strong if I have to, Paul says. I don't wanna be, I don't like that, but you watch. If I need to be, I can be. Now, he says, for we... As opposed to them, dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, but they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. See so they claim to be so wise, they claim to know what's going on in the world in the church, but just look at this simple thing: Their self-comparison is stupid. That's what he says, self-comparison is stupid. You can write that down. Pastor Steve said, self-comparison is stupid or unwise. It comes from the pit of hell. Self-commending, self-comparison is from Satan. Isaiah 14, this is about the king of Babylon, but you recognize behind the king of Babylon in Isaiah passage is the heart of Satan. And he says about Satan, You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. You see the comparison? I see God, I wanna be like him. I wanna be like God. That was Satan's goal. It goes back to Genesis. Look at Genesis chapter three. The serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. Man was created in the image of God, but the temptation is to compare and go, I wanna be that. See, for these guys, there's no objective standard. Did you notice that? They class themselves among themselves. To class yourself, you ever felt like, well, that's the upper class and I'm the lower class. We've decided that there's different classes. And we have the standard for what's upper class, upper crust, the kind of car you drive, the kind of house you live in, the kind of clothes you wear, the kind of job you have. That's upper class, but I'm lower class. And look at life in places like India, where there's the whole class society. It's all based on class. And you're born into that. You can't change that. The class is to judge worthy of being admitted to a certain group, a certain class. They decide, they class themselves and compare themselves with themselves and they commend themselves. So at the end of the day, They judge themselves, I'm a good person. I'm high class, I'm upper crust, I've arrived. And there's no standard for judging that. The standard is who? Themselves. I like to build stuff. Anybody like to build stuff? Measure twice, cut once. Measure twice, cut once. We have an objective standard. I mean, imagine if you and I were gonna build a deck together. I'm building a deck right now. And I am thankful that I have an objective standard for what is a foot. Because if you have a different tape measure... And you come out and I go, well, I got to make this 10 feet. So we both stretch our tape measures out and I go, well, 10 feet is here. And you go, no, I don't think so. I don't think that's a foot. Well, who says you get to decide what a foot is? Like who made you the foot king? The measurement God. But isn't that what we try to do? I mean, think about what happens if there's no objective standard. It was Protagoras, the sophist in Greece that said, man, the measure of all things which is the root of what we call relativism. Truth is relative. It's not objective, it's subjective. It's whatever I think it is. Do you know what happens when truth becomes relative? What happens when morality is relative? You get Nazi Germany. When they brought the Nazi higher ups for trial in Nuremberg for their war crimes, do you know what they said? We're trying you for murder, for genocide. And they said, you can't do that. So by what law will you judge us? And the argument was, we as the Nazis created law and our law said that killing people that were less than us, like Jews, was okay. So we made a law and then we followed our law. And so how can you judge us? And the answer, brilliant answer. This is all recorded in a book called When a Nation Forgets God by Erwin Lutzer. Get a copy of it. It reads like tomorrow's news. When a nation forgets God, seven lessons we must learn from Nazi Germany. Excellent book. This is one of my big takeaways. The answer to that question was, every law must be subject to a higher law by which it can be judged, good or bad. How do we judge laws, whether they're good or bad? How do we judge morality, unless we have some kind of standard for whether that is moral or not moral? What about gender? There are so many different gender identities today. There's male, female, transgender, gender neutral, non-binary, agender, pan-gender, genderqueer, two-spirit, third-gender, all, none, or combination. And that's just some. When it comes to gender, there's no baseline. There's no standard. And this is what Paul is facing, not in terms of gender or morality, but in terms of ministry, you see what he says? They measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves. says, this is not wise. This is not good. To compare, to judge one thing relative to another, to examine two or more objects, ideas, or people in order to note similarities and differences. With Paul, they measured him by their standard and found him deficient in speaking ability and in stage presence. Remember they said his bodily presence is weak. And church history, as I've mentioned, has told us that very fact. Now I've mentioned it before. There's a book from probably the third century AD called The Acts of Paul and Thecla. And it actually gives us a physical description of Paul. It says, he was a man of little stature, thin haired upon the crown. I like that about him. Crooked in the legs, of good state in body, with eyebrows meeting, (laughs) like a character from Sesame Street, and with nose somewhat hooked. This is what Paul looked like. Now, if you're going to be a great speaker and you're going to be an engaging entertainer, you also have to have an engaging stage presence. At least that's what they would say. So the first place they start criticizing Paul is his looks, his appearance, because that's what mattered to them. His bodily presence is weak and his speech literally counts as nothing. He's not saying anything Worthwhile. He's not meaning what he says. And what they're saying is, Oh, Paul, he can be strong from a distance. But when he's present, he's all bark and no bite. So if we trust in the speaking ability, then we say the gospel is deficient. It's not about the seed that you sow. It's about how you sow the seed. When I sow my seed, I twirl around. I dance. I use PowerPoint to sow my seed. My seed is better. No, it's not. We got the same seed. The seed has life, not the sower. Now I'm all for sowing seed with clarity and with effectiveness, but it's so easy to then put the emphasis on a sower and not the seed. So what do we compare? We compare everything, money, intellect. Are you from an Ivy League school? Do you have a PhD? For them, it was speech, rhetoric, debate. What about church ministry? Have you ever felt like deficient Christian? I don't read enough. Compared to what? I don't pray enough compared to who? I don't give enough compared to who? I don't serve enough compared to who? In ministry, oh my goodness. For me, it's a pastor. Being a pastor in modern day America is really tough. Why? Because we live in a marketplace mentality. Instead of my eyes being on Jesus, my eyes have to be on the church down the road. What are they doing over there? And now if I don't measure up, people are gonna go over there. So now we have to, Measure up to what that church is doing. What, that church has better music. We gotta have better music because everybody's going there. This is the thing we have to fight against. How do you tell if a church is a really good church? In the Bible, Jesus notes to the churches in the book of Revelation. I forget which church it is, but he says this church has a reputation for being alive, but they're dead. I don't want that to be true of us, God. I would rather really be alive and just have a reputation for being alive. But because we're so busy comparing church to church, and now that drives me crazy, now the big trend is I love my church. I understand, I get why people do that. I do love my church, but I don't have a church. Jesus is church. And that's meant to say a recognition that there's one church and we're all part of it. But I'm just trying to point out the mentality, the subtle things that breed comparison even in church life that get frustrating and discouraging because we have no standard to measure. Then we make up our own measure and that's what we judge other people by. So what's the answer? Because when you have the wrong standard, you develop a wrong view of yourself. So what's the answer? I like Paul. Maybe you missed it. I'm gonna point it out to you. For we dare not class ourselves. I don't enter into it. I don't go there. I don't play the game. I refuse to be measured by you or by them. I refuse to use a cultural standard. This is what happens with the church. We use a cultural standard of what makes something good or enjoyable or entertaining or fun. And then that church has to be that. This church has to be that. So few times I talk to people about, what are you looking for in a church? So few times do I hear, I want a church where I know they're teaching me the truth. Usually it's about kids ministry or music or whatever. I mean, look on Facebook. You'll see what the comments are. This church has great music. This church has great this or great that. And I want to, and I hope you join me. I want to do everything I can to just build up the whole body of Christ. That's always been our purpose. Always been in my heart to say, I don't want to draw attention to us or what we're doing. If God's working through us, people will notice. We don't have to say it. If you have to say it, maybe God's not working. So let's just do it, right? That's what Paul's ultimately gonna get to, but hang with me for a minute. So when we're comparing ourselves to others, Paul says, I'm not gonna go there because then I'm not looking at Jesus. Hebrews 12 says, I'm gonna run my race with endurance. My race, whose race? My race, not their race, not their race. I'm gonna run my race with endurance, looking where? Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of my faith. He is your faith, but that's between you and him. Jesus is the measure. They seem to have forgotten that. Greatest preacher ever lived, Jesus. Preached real simple. Kingdom of God is kind of like a guy planting seeds. I can get that. That's easy. Kingdom of God is kind of like a guy who finds treasure in the field. Oh, huh, that's really simple. Clear, simple, easy to understand. If Jesus is the measure, when it comes to righteousness, I fall short of his righteousness. I'm not perfect. I know I need a substitute. I know I need grace. If Jesus is the measurement when it comes to ministry, it's not how big or how expansive. I mean, Jesus was crucified. At the end of his ministry, he got killed. Most people are not using suffering, which is what Paul's gonna use. When we read ahead, Paul's gonna say, here's what I've suffered as a pastor. Not here's what a great orator I am. Or here's the nice clothes that I wear, the big car that I drive, the fancy church that I built. Jesus preached from a boat in the water even have his own building. Suffering, humility, to be great is to be the servant of all. Paul's going to hold up weakness as the standard and not strength. You don't hear people boasting about that. Oh, I'm way weaker than you. Oh no, you're not. No, no, not. I'm weaker. No, you're not. I'm weaker. I got fewer people at my church. No, I don't have fewer people at my church. I'm way humbler than you. I try that one on. I am way humbler than you. <laughs> People don't argue about that stuff, right? But that's what Paul says. And then the feelings that accompany that, acceptance, wholeness, contentment, gratitude, joy, anticipation, the actions. Well, that's the last part of the message for today. Verse 13, for we, however, will not boast beyond measure, which they were doing, but within the limits of the sphere, which God appointed us, a sphere, which especially includes you. Paul says, look, I'm just gonna work right where God put me. And God happened to put me in Corinth. That's where I started a church. And that's my sphere. You're the children that I gave birth to. Your sphere of influence is not other people's children, it's your children. It's easy to look around and go, Well, they're not doing this with their kids. They're not doing that. Well, just focus on your own kids. Well, this family is that. This family is this. Well, focus on your own family. Well, they're not praying in the schools. They're not praying at the government. Are they praying in your family? Are you praying? So Paul says, look, I'm not gonna boast about all these great things that are beyond the measure of the sphere God's given me, for we, this is what Paul was being accused of, for we are not overextending ourselves as though our authority did not extend to you, for it was to you that we came with the gospel of Christ, not boasting of things beyond measure that is in other men's labors, but having hope that as your faith is increased, we shall be greatly enlarged by you in our sphere to preach the gospel in the regions beyond and not to boast in another man's sphere of accomplishment. He uses to boast beyond measure things outside of their sphere in two times, verses 13 and 15. So this is what he's dealing with. They're coming in late in the game. They didn't plant the church. They didn't fight it out in Corinth against persecution and all that. And then they roll in later and try to take over the place and boast about, oh, look at how great the church is because of what we've done. And Paul's like, are you kidding me? So many people try to ride on other people's coattails. You know, when we started Calvary Chapel, Calvary Chapel's big out in California, but not so much on the East Coast. So when we hang out the signs as Calvary Chapel, people go, I don't know what Calvary Chapel is. Good, because I don't want you to judge based on someone else's work. Just because we have a name over the church, whatever that name is, I want you to come and let our ministry stand for itself whatever you see happening here, let that speak for itself. I'm not gonna boast to you about who I know. Just because you've worked for somebody or been connected to somebody, you know how name dropping works. Well, I connect myself to someone who's accomplished something in hopes that you'll credit that to my account. If you want stuff accredited to your account, you gotta actually do something. You gotta get up and serve the Lord instead of just coming in and trying to ride on somebody else's coattails. I think another point, a way to tear down the stronghold of comparison is just let your own actions speak for themselves. It's between you and God. God gives to one a measure of talents, to another a different measure, and to another a different measure, all based on what he knows their ability to be. Read the parable of the talents. God knows you. He gives you what you need. Now, the question is, what do you do with it? I'm a simple guy, and I just like this because Paul says, I'm just going to let my actions speak for themselves. And because he's not playing the comparison game, he says, you know what? Having hope that as your faith is increased, we shall be greatly enlarged in our sphere. I'm not going to try to go steal sheep from somebody else. You know, there's so many churches being planted all over the place around Charlottesville these days. And I'm not saying that that's wrong, but what I'm saying for me, I get tired of the comparison game. It's just so pervasive in American church that there's a part of me that fantasizes. Now don't You know, we've talked about Italy before, and I'm just using this as an example. We're not packing our bags and moving, so don't freak out and tell second service, Pastor Steve is leaving and moving to Italy. My point is, is that there's places on planet Earth where there's no church. So instead of planting a church right down the road from the other church, why not go somewhere where there's no churches and there's no competition? But see, what we have now is the sheep shell game. Sheep just move from church to church to church. The sheep used to be at that church. Now the sheep are at that church. Then a new exciting church pops up and all the sheep move over to the new exciting church because we're Americans and we like stuff that's new and exciting. So Paul says, another way out of this is that people that get out of the comparison game, secure people are still ambitious. Matter of fact, I think they're more ambitious. People who are secure in their relationship with God and who they are, are actually very ambitious people. Paul says, I don't have time to play your game. I got plans. got plans to take the gospel to regions beyond because I don't want to boast in another man's sphere of accomplishment. I'm not going to come in and horn in on what you're doing here. I'm going to go out and work in an area that's free and open. And finally, he finishes up. He quotes Jeremiah, but he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. For not he who commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commends. So Paul quotes Jeremiah chapter nine. In Jeremiah, the nation is facing judgment. It's inevitable. So the Lord says, let not the wise man boast of their wisdom or the strong man boast of their strength or the rich boast of their riches. None of those will save you from judgment coming, God would say in Jeremiah. But let the one who boasts, boast about this. So if you want to boast, here's what you boast about. That they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice and righteousness on earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. Do you want something worth boasting about? I got a relationship with God. And everything else is icing on the cake. Because, Paul says, it's not the person who commends themselves. Just because someone tells you they're great doesn't mean they are. Just because someone tells you they're accomplished doesn't mean they are. Always, always, always judge a tree by its fruit, not by its mouth. For not he who commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commends. Amen? Can we tear down some strongholds of comparison? Are you getting there, church? So, so vital. So vital.